Thanks for listening to the Imago Day podcast. If you live in the Portland area, we'd love to invite you into the life of our community. You can find out what's going on at idcpdx.com slash events or on social media at Imago Day PDX. Today's text is Mark 3, 22 through 27. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebub, and by the prince of demons he casts out the demons. And he called them to him and said them to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then, indeed, he may plunder his house. This is the word of the Lord. I don't usually share my sermon titles because... Unless you're listening on a podcast, you don't really care, you don't really know. But today, I thought after a reading like that, you need to know where I'm going. (laughs) Today's sermon is titled, The Terrific News Regarding Your Impending Judgment. Are you curious now? Are we ready? Each week, we've been in a series called uh, We Believe, and we've been inspecting the oldest most concise, most widely used document of Christian doctrine called the Apostles' Creed. It's an important document because while it wasn't, um, it's not in your Bible, it was written around the time your Bible was written and is to this day one of the central places Christians look to say what is Christianity. And as a church, we're in a season where it's very important to know what kind of church we are and where we stand and where we direct our attention towards what we believe. And in the Apostles' Creed, you're confessing things that maybe you struggle to believe yourself. But I've said each week, it's important to confess it because we're confessing the mystery that is our faith, which is the more and more we confess it, the deeper the truths go to us. It's not something you read like a contract, understand it, and then sign it. It's something more like a wedding vow, that you say it, and then upon living it and continuing to say it, the meaning rolls in deeper. You see, We don't get to make Christianity up. I've said that every week. It's an important thing for us to realize that Christianity is a received faith. We don't get to improvise upon it. We don't get to make new things up about it. We actually hold it as a deposit that has been given to us by Jesus through the apostles and the prophets from the Old Testament, from the testimony of scripture and the historic and global church, these things are the ways in which we receive our faith. And so this week we get to a time in the Apostles' Creed where we are confessing perhaps the most mysterious part of the faith. And I figured you had an extra hour of sleep so we can do this today. This is what it says. It says, I believe in Jesus Christ. Now we covered this part last week, his only son, our Lord. And what we talked about last week was how Jesus was a human, and look at these words. He was conceived, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered, crucified, died, and was buried. And now we get to the fun part. It says this, he descended to hell. The third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. And from there, from that seat, we confess this, he will come to judge 
the living and the dead. Last week, we dealt with the vulnerability of our faith found in the cross of Christ, that Jesus was, look at those words, conceived, born, suffered, crucified, died. Things happened to him. He endured things. But Jesus, the Son of God, is not just Jesus of Nazareth, the historical person who lived and was crucified. Jesus, the Son of God, is the eternal person, second person of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit. Jesus himself says that he was there at the foundation of the world. Jesus himself says, before Abraham was, I am. Paul confesses that Jesus, the Son of God, was making the world with the Father and the Spirit. And in our confession, we say that Jesus is doing something. He took a seat, and he's seated right now, and he's living. And from that seat, he will come again. It's to put it this way. The whole point of this faith is that the vulnerable, cross-shaped nature that I spoke about last week is not just a formal historical event, but a living reality from which and by which all life will one day be redeemed. Let me put it this way. Last week we talked about the man who was Jesus Christ, and this week we talk about the God who is Jesus Christ, currently seated on a throne, ruling and reigning and awaiting his return to quote, judge the living and the dead. Now, what does that mean? Because judgment probably gets you a little feeling antsy, feeling a little uncomfortable, especially you're like, here's the new lead pastor, what is he going to say? But this is an important part of our creed, and I want to talk today about the reality of the judgment, the, our own aversion to judgment, I want to address that, and then I want to talk about the beauty that is the coming judgment of Jesus because when it's rightly understood, my whole argument today is that when it's rightly understood, the second coming and the judgment of Jesus is the best news the church can hold, that Jesus will come again. So let's look at the reality of judgment first. The truth is you cannot read your New Testament, and some of you have tried, but you cannot read your New Testament without encountering passages about judgment. Jesus talks about it all the time. You're like, let's get to the parts where he's telling me to forgive. Let's get to the parts where he's telling me to, you know, pray more or something like that. And then he's meanwhile saying, do you see this fig tree? It's dying and one day I'm going to return and things are going to get worse, you know, or whatever. And you're like, whoa, Jesus, slow down. But this is a part of your New Testament you cannot ignore. When Paul is preaching to the intellectual elites of the Areopagus in, uh, in uh, Greece, he says this as a part of his sermon. He says, the times of ignorance God overlooked. There's times of ignorance that God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. That's a, that's a word to say to change your mind or to change your behavior. Because, why is he calling people to repent? Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So he says the man he's appointed is the second person of the Trinity, Jesus, to come and return to judge the living and the dead. And he gave us this assurance by raising him up once from the dead. Here's Jesus Christ himself in Matthew 12, 35. The good person out of his good treasure bring forth, brings forth good. The evil person out of the evil treasure or the things you value, you produce evil. That's a pretty simple teaching. We can get behind that, right? When you value good things and treasure good things, you will produce good. If you treasure evil, you produce evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, though, there's that word, that phrase again, 
people will give an account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, by your words you will be condemned. And I'm almost done, I promise. Second Corinthians 5.10, I'm just giving you a sample of your New Testament. This is not me, this is your Bible. Be mad at your Bible, don't be mad at me. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. That's why the creed talks about Jesus being seated. From that seat, he'll come to judge so that each one of us may receive what is, has, what he, uh, what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or for evil. Now again, Jesus in his, in his, in his um, ministry, time after time, if you just read the end of definitely every synoptic gospel, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, if you just read the final five to seven chapters of those books, Jesus' words are very, very alarming about his return, and he gives all kinds of parables, but these parables are really beautiful parables. They end up being parables that bring us into the beauty of Jesus' return and how good it can be, but before we get there, let's address our aversion to judgment. I just gave you three of probably dozens of judgments passages in your New Testament, and each of them made you feel a kind of way. Maybe you didn't feel super great about those passages. Why is that? Why is there something in us that is averse to the things that God has said? Well, first, I think we've, many of us have inherited bad and weird end times theology. Maybe you are a recipient of that. Maybe you uh, come from a culture where that was a big deal. I don't come from that culture. I don't come from a, 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 the, the kind of church that you know, made you read books like Left Behind and talked a lot about the rapture and things like that. I don't come from that. But many of us maybe are averse to that kind of thinking because of the bad and weird end times theology we've inherited. That and maybe some weird prophetic things going on. Right now, the war in Israel has really brought up a ton of weird, bad end times theology that's predicting the end of the world and pastors gathering large crowds of people and large YouTube channels talking about prophecy updates where they're constantly moving the goalposts and telling you that there's certain uh, events that are matched up with biblical texts, that the biblical texts have nothing to do with the current event, but they make it seem like it might do that, and that kind of can make you just be averse to the whole thing. I just don't want to deal with judgment because of the weird theology around it. The second thing, though, is that a lot of us have just a love of the world or cares of life. Those are two biblical phrases from 1 John 2 and Mark 4, the love of the world and the cares of life. Some of us don't like the words of judgment because the world is just good. Right now, we have good relationships. We have great family. We're making some money. We like our career. And we don't want to think about Jesus returning or having anything to do with our belief because we want to do Christianity right now. We want to build community, self-actualize, make ourselves the better person we believe God is making us become, kind of work on our parenting techniques, forgive relationships with our roommates, and develop wholeness in ourselves, all of which is great. But we're so focused on this life. Or for some of us, we just love life so much because of the material items that, that surround us and the technology that distracts us. At some level, because we live in the most distracted age in human history, that our level of attention to Jesus' return is just on the latest thing we're watching or the latest social media trend. And then finally, some of our aversion to judgment, uh, judgment comes from what I would call Western supremacy. Now, you've heard of white supremacy. That's 
evil and bad in another sermon, but Western supremacy is a way of thinking in the West, and some of you I recognize you do not come from Western culture, but the majority of us in this room have been shaped by Western thinking. Um, You know, starting in the Mediterranean, into Western Europe, and now in America, these dominant forms of thinking are uh, philosophies that have come from people in power. And when you're in power, and when you're on top of the world, you don't want to really think about being brought down to the bottom of the world. You don't want to think about being assessed by a divine judge. But remember last week, the New Testament is not written from a powerful place. The New Testament was written from prison. The New Testament was written from isolated political exiles. The New Testament was written by people oppressed by a government that was harming their way of life. The fragility of our faith and the cross, it shapes how we think about Jesus' return. It's that cruciform nature, the cross-shaped nature I talked about last week, that produces the eagerness that we should have when we face and think about Jesus' return. Suffering, vulnerability, cruciformity, they produce Hope, it actually produces hope. It produces a kind of thinking. You see, you can only really see the beauty of Jesus' judgment and his return to right the world when you understand the fragility and desperation of our humanity. Let me say that again. The only way to really see the beauty of Jesus' return and his judgment is when you understand the fragility and desperation of the human condition. This really opened, uh, was open to me really fairly recently when I started to think about judgment differently because I was out at Duke University where I'm doing doctoral work and they had these visiting scholars from the Great Lakes region of Africa. And there was a pastor named Dr. Robert Cotto who came on Zoom and spoke to us about uh, Jeremiah. We were studying Jeremiah but he was talking also about some trends in Western theology that were concerning to him. And one of the concerns he had as an African scholar and pastor in the Democratic Republic of Congo was that there was a diminishment, even a deleting, or a distortion into weird, bad, end times theology around the second coming of Jesus. And this was concerning to him. And he said this line that I wrote down as fast as I could, so it could be a slight misquote, but he said this, most of this theology that has, uh, most of the theology that has deleted or distorted the coming of judgment of Christ on the earth has been made by pastors and academics who have never ran for their life. This man once was studying in his back room uh, at the seminary that he oversees in the DRC and when um, a militant group came in to kill him and he ran out the back door and hid in the the bush for his life. Now that's just one story he has. When you face deep opposition and daily threats of violence, it becomes terrific news that judgment is coming. But when you sit in the position of privilege and power, judgment is weird and kind of scary and something you don't want to think about. But when you sit where Dr. Kato sits, he awaits the beauty of Jesus' return to right all the wrongs. 
You see, there is a reality of judgment and there is an aversion to judgment that we must confront before we really see the beauty of judgment. The beauty, because there is beauty in the judgment of Jesus, especially when you understand judgment as this. I would have you think about judgment not as scrutiny. Some of you are thinking about moral scrutiny, that God shows up and looks at you individually and starts to pick apart your life. But judgment, best understood, is about justice bringing. It's about bringing in the full reign of God's justice, a leveling of the field, a kind of equalizing of all of humanity. It includes, but is not limited to, penalty for people doing evil and protection of the innocent. Biblical justice always has those two things connected to each other, that it's not just penalty for the evildoers. There is a simultaneously simultaneous action of protecting innocent people. And so judgment, when viewed this way, can start to see the beauty of it. But the question becomes, how will Jesus do this? How will he bring his judgment? Does he come in with thunder and fire like we kind of think about? This is why I chose the teaching text from uh, Mark chapter three. Look at this. If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. In this passage, uh, you heard Jordan read it beautifully. Jesus is being accused of serving Satan and not serving the God of Israel. And he says, look, if there's a kingdom divided against itself, it's not gonna stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand but is coming to an end. But look at what he says, but. Then he gives this weird parable. No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods or take his goods unless he first binds the strong man, then he can indeed plunder his house. Some more charismatic interpretations of this passage are about us in prayer binding strong men like demons in order to keep them back and you know plunder the goods to help people get whole. And so maybe you've heard this quoted. I'm, I'm not convinced that's the interpretation here because this is a passage in the context of Jesus Christ being accused of a kingdom being divided and Jesus Christ talking about defending his kingdom and his actions. I don't think this is about our work binding the strong man. This is a description of Jesus' work against the forces of evil. This is about Jesus' kingdom versus Satan's and the certainty that Jesus' power will defeat all evil, sin, and darkness that will begin at him first getting into Satan's place and tying him up. And what is Satan's place? Satan's place is often referred to as Gehenna or hell or the place of darkness. And I believe here, and I was helped a lot by one of my theological heroes, Fleming Rutledge. She wrote this masterful book called The Crucifixion. And in this book, she talks about this passage as being a key to help us understand the creed. When the creed said that Jesus descended into hell, then ascended to the throne and will come to judge the living and the dead. And in her work, she says that you have to understand hell or Satan's domain and his place as a prison from which escape is impossible unless there is active deliverance from without. 
there's a separation of this realm that Jesus has to go in and break in and defeat the forces of darkness in order to end up delivering us for the goods to be plundered, to use his parabolic language. Mark's message, she goes on to say, depends on our understanding that the demon is separate from the man he is tormenting. She's comparing another text where a a demon is tormenting a man in uh, Mark chapter one. And look at this, that Jesus's authority over such demons derives from another realm that has never before appeared in full strength in the sphere of the flesh until the incarnation of the son. Now you might be reading this and thinking, Chris, this is a lot of spiritual warfare kind of speak. And again, I'd ask you to reconsider your westernly supreme thinking and help you understand that three quarters of the world has no problem thinking about the world as a spiritually saturated place. Three quarters of the world has no problem considering that there are not just, there's not just a world of a divine being God and a bunch of humans scattered about. That tends to be a very Cartesian, like Western thinking. There's just God and a bunch of humans. You know, we don't live in just a world of God and a bunch of humans. We live in a world of God, humans, and the spiritual realm of angels and demons and spiritual realities that are at work in this world. And in Mark's theology and in Jesus' teaching, he's talking about this separateness of the forces of darkness, hell, death, demons. That separateness is important when we think about why did Christ have to descend into hell? Why do we confess that? Where is that in Scripture? We have to see that it's important that Jesus descended into a place we could never go and come back from. You see, the place in which we could never go and come back from alive, Jesus himself went to and came back alive. Jesus, not us, is the one who has bound the strong man through his death. He was the one who went into his house, tied up the enemy, and to use Colossians 2.15 language, put him to open shame. In the Mark passage, the teaching text, Jesus is teaching us that we won't be able to do anything of significance in our work for justice until Jesus himself did the work of justice against the evil forces behind them, tying up the big guy, to use his language. Over and over again, here's another slide. The writers of the New Testament talk about Jesus raising from the dead, and in our, in our, in our, even in the Apostles' Creed, we use that clause, from the dead. There are so many references to this, I couldn't even fill fill the screen. But to us, that kind of thinking, like when we say, oh, Jesus rose from the dead, we're like, of course I believe that, Jesus rose from the dead. I believe in Jesus' divinity, he rose from the dead. What Western people think is they say that to say Jesus rose from the physiological state of death, which he most certainly did. But the New Testament writers did not believe only that Jesus rose from the physiological state of being dead, He rose from the realm of the dead. Now read that again. Jesus rose from the dead. He rose from the place at which dead came from. From Old Testament talks about sheol, for example, is a Hebrew word of like, it's a very vague Hebrew word we don't totally know a ton about, but it's kind of the dark state of death. And same with Gehenna, that's a complicated word, the the word for hell, it's a complicated word in New Testament Greek. However, there's some connotations that there is a darkness from which Jesus went into and came back from. Jesus, yes, rose from the physiological state of death, but he also rose from the realm of the dead, literally from the dead. 
as Peter says in his first sermon, Peter's very first sermon. Now this is the time that's like, if you're gonna be judged on a sermon, this is it. Peter, apostle of Jesus, very close to who uh, Jesus Christ was, the founder, many people say, of the church, gets up on Pentecost Sunday and says this in Acts 2. God raised Jesus up, loosing, or like loosening, like stirring up the pangs or the sting of death. Why? Because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Meaning, there was a confrontation with that death, was there not? And God was ending up defeating the powers of darkness, as we say in theology. The good news of the resurrection is that Jesus went to a place, whatever you want to call it, death, hell, Hades, Sheol, Jesus went to a place that no one has ever come back from and returned alive. His return from deadness and the eternal darkness or hell is precisely the good news we need. No one has ever descended into hell and lived to tell about it. Christ has. And that's why Jesus' return is so important and so beautiful because it's precisely from that point of victory where Jesus defeated the forces of darkness that he's able to judge rightly because Jesus Christ, the true and living God, is the only one who has gone to the depths of hell and the heights of heaven. And so when you think, who would you trust to reconcile the world? Who would you trust to right the wrongs of the world? It might be the one who not only has the greatest experiences with the light things and the joy of this world, but the one who has the most experience with the forces of darkness. Jesus Christ, the one who went in, the one who went into the house on our behalf to bind the strong man. Jesus is the trustworthy judge because of the cross where he proved his love and his power over darkness. When the New Testament gives us visions and metaphors of Christ's return, they are um, interwoven with the language of the cross. It's not as if the cross happened and ooh, that kind of sucked and I guess we kind of got to get past that so Jesus kind of returns in tons of power as if like there's a big gotcha moment. Like you got me one time, but you won't get me twice. Fool me once, yes, you crucified me, but you won't get me again. No, it's actually from the crucifixion that Jesus returns with wounds on him. There's two images of a wounded lamb and a wounded rider in Revelation. Revelation's that last book of the Bible that you definitely try to ignore. Let me help you not ignore it this morning. The very end of your Bible, you are caught up into a dizzying vision of the return of Jesus by one of his followers, John. John was in exile and went into a revelation. And the revelation is not, it's very important, the, the, the title historically of that book is the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's not the revelation of the end times. It's not the revelation of when the world will end. It is the revelation, the revealing of the Son of God that book is all about Jesus Christ. That book is about who he is and what he came to do and what the church can hold on to. And in this book, there are these two images that John has. In Revelation 5, he, he's, he's going through this image where he's, he's, he's weeping in this passage. And he's crying because he realizes no one can 
what he says, open the scroll, which is a very ancient way of talking about kind of an unraveling of justice and truth and justice coming to bear. And he says, no one can do it. No one can open the scroll. And there's other angelic beings or elders they're called in this passage in, Re in Revelation 5. And they say, John, don't cry. Don't be sad and averse to the judgment because someone can unroll the scroll. It's the lion of the tribe of Judah, they say. And he goes, a lion? And he looks up and he doesn't see a lion. He sees a lamb as though it has been slain, Revelation 5 says. He hears the mighty roar of what could be a lion, but when he turns his gaze up, he sees a lamb slain, and that's covered in like Old Testament uh, imagery we don't have time to get into. But there is a slain lamb sitting there saying, as the image of Jesus Christ, as the appearance of Jesus Christ, to say, Jesus will return and judge as the one who is slain, as the one who has been wounded, as the one who has been crucified. Meaning, he's not the one coming to execute ju justice and judgment without any experience of justice and judgment. He's actually coming to bring justice and judgment as he has bore it on his shoulders, as he has wore it on himself. And he's bringing his return back with the wounds to prove it. The second is in Revelation 19 of a rider who walks, who comes thundering in on a horse, but his robe is dipped in blood and it says that his sword is coming out of his mouth. A weird image, very, very bizarre image, but in apocalyptic literature, weird images are super normal. That's why you try to avoid Revelation. But in this literary form called apocalyptic literature, which was all over the ancient world, weird images are where it's at. That's how you speak. And in this strange image of the sword coming out of his mouth, it's interesting to note that there is no sheath from which he pulls the sword, but the sword comes from almost a wounding that he has been inflicted upon. And so his return, again, in justice and in judgment, comes from the very cross that he endured. Jesus' victory over sin and darkness and his coming return is carrying with it his sacrificial death and his life-giving word, his teaching. Jesus' coming judgment will include, but not be limited, to these three things. Atonement, authority, and altruism. Atonement, authority, and altruism. When Jesus returns, he shows up with atonement, something he's given the church. What is atonement? Atonement is a covering of sin. It's the evil in us can actually be forgiven in Jesus. So Jesus doesn't come and with a big gotcha moment of like, oh, you didn't know. Actually, he sent the church and he sent the Holy Spirit and he sent his gospel right now to help us announce that Jesus doesn't hold stuff against you. That actually because Jesus wore the sin on the cross, we do not have to wear the sin in our bodies. The stuff that has been done to you, the things that you have done that you are ashamed of are not something that you cower when Jesus returns and go, I hope he doesn't find out. There's something you look at with joy and say he's covered it in his cross. That when Jesus comes to judge the living and the dead, he comes with the atoning wounded lamb and wounded rider to say, I've come to bear your sin first and foremost. And so one of the reasons it's terrific news that Jesus will return again is he's not going to judge us based off our performance, he's going to judge us based off of his.
That when Jesus returns, he doesn't come looking for your sin because he knows it's bearing his, in his own body and his scars on the cross. Atonement was something accomplished on the cross that gives us hope that when Jesus, was re- Jesus returns, he will not count sin against us as we trust him for his reconciliation. You see, God's atonement and his rec- reconciliation, it's actually a form of judgment itself because it rebukes everyone else who, says, who speaks against grace and mercy and hope. The ones who speak against grace and speak against second chances and speak against a forgiving God will be righted when the forgiving God shows up and reconciles us to himself. But secondly, Jesus will return with authority that the evil around us can be sorted out by Jesus. Again, because he spanned the depths of hell and the heights of heaven, there is nothing from under which, uh, there's nothing over Jesus. In fact, before he left and ascended to the throne, he said this to his followers. He said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And he has been given the keys to the kingdom. And altruism, that Jesus, you know what altruism means. It's like the practice of selfless concern, which is to say that when Jesus returns, we can have hope that he loves evildoers more than you and me. We're the ones that are kind of, if you read the Psalms, there's a lot of really funny prayers in there called imprecatory Psalms. There are Psalms about like, God, you better judge these terrible people. It's kind of like those Psalms you need to look at sometimes when you're feeling it against someone. You're like, man, I need to pray Psalm 10 right now. That thing's... It's getting heated. We are the ones praying those psalms, like, God, do judgment. But Jesus is the one bringing a calm and collected and peaceful approach to his selfless concern for the well-being of other people. He loves evildoers more than you and me. We can have hope in his return because of that. This is the judge we need. This is the kind of king that we can trust to bring justice to our world. And this is the kind of hope that we are looking for today. Because when you see the war in Israel and Gaza, and you see the death of innocent Israelis and innocent Palestinians and women and children that are being suffered, what do you want? You want justice. Someone to bring the judgment, penalty for evildoers, and protection for the innocent. Even when you can't figure out who's the evildoer and who's the innocent, you want someone to bring justice so that it ends. What do you want when you see another mass shooting in this country? What do you ache for? What do you long for when you see the death of the innocent? You ache for and you long for someone to bring judgment. The penalty for those who are enacting evil the grace for those that need the grace, the protection of people that are facing innocent, that are innocent and facing harm, this is the kind of judge we want. You see what I'm saying? When you start to think about the world through the lens of being under subjugation and not in subjugation, you start to see that Jesus and his second coming has transcended and gone throughout all of history because it's so beautiful. Not because it's just this weird part of Christian theology we gotta accept, but rather it is the great hope. You know, in church history, do you know what they call the second coming of Jesus? They call it the blessed hope. The blessed hope. When you think about the blessed hope, you might think this divine showering of spiritual goodies. Oh, we all feel better about ourselves. That's very a Western way of thinking. 
When you are facing daily threats of violence, the greatest news you could ever hear, the blessed hope that would, that would excite your heart and stir your soul would be that someone would come and bring justice. And so friends, this is the posture the New Testament invites us into. It invites us into two words when it speaks about the return of Jesus. It speaks to readiness and righteousness. These are two words you might see in connection when it's speaking about the coming of Jesus again. Readiness and righteousness. Readiness meaning an expectation and an encouragement and an alertness. Like a lot of times when you read these passages about Jesus coming again, there's words like stay awake, keep your lamps burning, watch closely, you do not know the hour. Matthew 24, 36, Jesus says, concerning that, that day when I return, no one knows, he says, not even angels nor the son. He actually says, not even I know when I'm coming again, but only the father. Therefore, he says, stay awake, for you do not know on the day at which the Lord is coming. So anybody who tells you that they know the day or around the day that is coming, just sit back and go, I know that's not right, I just need to stay ready. Readiness and righteousness. Righteousness is that Jesus has gifted us with a right relationship with him. Righteousness is about speaking about right relationships. Right relationship with God through the cross of Jesus and right relationships with one another. That in bringing, in knowing that Jesus will bring judgment, we execute righteous th uh, ways of living. Because we are certain Jesus will come and bring justice, we do justice now. We actually do justice as a way of rolling out the red carpet for him to return. As a way of, oh, plundering the house of Satan while the, the strong man's bound. You see, Christians throughout history have always been the ones to go to the darkest places. To go to the darkest points of the earth, Christians have always been there, why? Because they don't fear evil. Because the strong man has been bound and we get to plunder the goods, meaning we get to do a ton of justice. Because we're not afraid of stepping into those relationships that might be harmful. We're not afraid of stepping into those, and I'm not talking about stepping back into an abusive relationship or anything, but I'm talking about stepping into a relationship with somebody who has a complicated past and a history. We actually step into that relationship because we know we can face this with Jesus' imputed righteousness. Those tough issues of justice, Christians are the ones on the forefront of those. Many times throughout many points in history, long after any sensible person has ever left and abandoned a place, who was left? Christians, priests, nuns, pastors, missionaries, they always stay. Why do they stay? Because of the blessed hope because the strong man has been bound and we're plundering the goods. We're doing righteousness and justice because Jesus is bringing righteousness and justice. And this is why we do it with such confidence. This is the prayer that Paul prays to the Thessalonian church. Now, may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for us all, as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming 
of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Do you hear the good news of the context of that verse? Paul is saying, let's be kind to each other and show righteousness and justice and holiness to one another because we wanna be found that way when he returns. And that's why the table prepares us for this place. This table prepares us for this moment because it brings us to confront righteousness and readiness. At the table, the New Testament tells us that when we take the bread and the cup, each person, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, should examine themselves when they come to the table. And that's not to say am I a good person or a bad person, but to just examine and go, Lord, where am I not allowing your righteousness into my life? Where am I trying to perform instead of trying to receive your love? And in righteousness, we confront the table and we become ready for Jesus' coming and we become righteous because what are we doing? We're receiving the imputed righteousness of Jesus. Imputation means the giving of his righteousness onto us. That we take the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus and realize this broken body and shed blood was given to you and for all so that sins may be forgiven. Do this, Jesus says, in memory of me. Don't take communion thinking about yourself too much. Examine yourself beforehand and receive communion to receive Jesus' goodness, Jesus' righteousness, and Jesus' grace on your life to realize this is not about me waiting for Jesus to return and become a better person so that when he shows up, I might prove better. It's to wait for Jesus' return so that when he comes, you say, thank you, Jesus, for being my righteousness. And so may we come to the table with joy and expectation and beauty as we await his coming again, knowing this, at his coming, he will bring great justice and great goodness to us and our world, uh, something we long for today. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would work in us your righteousness, that you would work in us your justice, and that as we await your coming, we would receive it with great expectation and good news. And so, Lord, whatever our aversion to judgment might have been today, may the table invite us to the beauty of your bringing justice. I ask you, Holy Spirit, to be kind to us and to show us your great love as we approach the table. And we pray this in Christ's name, amen.